And welcome to March of History. I am your co-host, Trevor Furness. I'm here with my other co-host, Brandon. Want to say hi, Brandon? Hey, this is Brandon Furness, and I'll be co-hosting with Trevor. Perfect. And for the first episode of March of History, we've decided to talk about uh, the one and only Julius Caesar. He's actually probably my all-time favorite historical figure for a variety of reasons, one of which I think he's kind of unique in the fact that he's the only historical figure I've ever read about, at least, that seems to have been good at every single thing he put his hand to. He was considered to be one of the top-tier writers of his day, one of the greatest Roman generals of all time, one of the greatest politicians of all time, one of the greatest public speakers of all time, a master horseman, somebody who was known to be extremely skilled with weapons, great at interpersonal skills, and had an enormous amount of charisma. So there seems to be nothing that this guy tried that he wasn't good at, which isn't to say that he didn't fail a lot, because he did, but... That's kind of the interesting part of his life is is this person with immense talent going against a, a lot of odds and, and most of the time succeeding, but not always. So I've, I've heard of Caesar the Conqueror, but what do you mean by Caesar the writer? I've heard anything. I've heard of Cicero, but I've never heard of Caesar being yeah. a great writer. Caesar was known to be one of the better writers in his time during the Roman Republic. And, and that's something to keep in mind, too, is... You know, we all know about the Caesars as as the emperors of, of Rome. This is before the emperors. This was he was lived during the uh, the time of the Republic. In fact, he was instrumental in, in transforming it from a republic to an empire. But he was known to be a fantastic writer in his day and age. He wrote while he was on a campaign in Gaul, which is modern day France, something called the Gallic Commentaries. And they were basically dispatches from himself in the front lines to the Senate and to the people of Rome, writing about the exploits of his army and the conquests that they made. And it's considered to be a masterpiece of Latin literature. And many Latin classes start out learning Caesar's Gallic commentaries simply because he uses very simple and direct language. It's not a lot of like flower, flowery wording. It's very direct, very simple and I know also while on campaign, he wrote a, a whole I guess, book or pamphlet on correct use of Latin grammar. I'm not exactly sure what it was about, but he was very into writing, very into into Latin and was considered to be extremely skilled at it, which is unusual, unusual when you're talking about conquering, uh, you know, war heroes. They're not usually writers. Yeah, yeah, it's true. But uh, we will cover all that as we go through his life. As I said in the intro, the way I, I foresee uh, March of History is going from beginning to end of really interesting historical figures' lives. So we're going to take Caesar from the beginning of his life all the way to the end. And once we're done with that, we'll find somebody new to talk about. But there's a lot that happened in Caesar's life. It's probably a more eventful life than most people ever live. So it'll be an interesting one for us. So to get started, I guess we'll we'll just give you a a feel for the world in which he was born into. I'm not going to bore everybody with with a lot of dates, but I will say that he was born in roughly around the year 100 BC. And again, Rome was still a republic. It was having a lot of troubles at this time, the republic, but it was still a republic and nobody could conceive of it being anything other than a republic. And when he was born, there was a, a civil war between two men, one named Marius, who was, or Gaius Marius, who was Caesar's uncle, 
and one named Lucius Cornelius Sola. Lucius Cornelius Sola. (laughs) And uh, these two guys were very similar and very opposite, very unique personalities, very strong personalities. I mean, obviously, they drug the entire republic into civil war because of their personal feud. So I'm going to give you a background on them and who they are because they have a big influence on Caesar in his early life. Marius was, he was kind of an outsider to Rome. He was born in a town outside the city called Arpinum. The Romans were extremely snobby about who was Roman, who wasn't Roman, and they did not like outsiders coming in and taking political positions because there was only a finite amount of these political positions, these elected offices. And every outsider that got one eliminated a what they considered a real Roman from getting one. So kind of much like the U.S. today, they were kind of a city of a, of a lot of different immigrants over the years. But many of those immigrants then turned around and felt like they weren't immigrants. They were Romans now, and they didn't want the new immigrants. <laughs> so there's, there's See, a lot it, of parallels. One, yeah. yeah, one thing that I was wondering, I've heard you say in the past that Marius is an outsider, a new man of Rome, and Caesar is from an old family of Rome. How are they related if uh, one's from an old family and the other is his uncle, but a new man of Rome? That's a good question. Yeah, so they, they did call Marius uh, a new man, or uh, they called it, it was in, in Latin, Novus Homo, which meant that you had no illustrious ancestors to point to. You were an unknown family. And Marius... And this was actually quite common. So Marius was considered to be incredibly capable, an up-and-coming force of nature, a very strong personality, but he had no ancestors. But he had a ton of money from uh, the different wars that he had fought and the business ventures that he had done. Now, Julius Caesar's family had the lineage, had the – they were considered to be descended from actually the goddess Venus or uh, the equivalent of the Greek goddess Aphrodite. And uh, she was supposed to have had a kid with one of the princes of Troy. And that kid was, I believe his name was Aeneas. And then when the Greeks sacked Troy, Aeneas, who was a prince of Troy and descendant of this goddess Venus, fled and then went and eventually settled in Rome. And so that was his ancestry. So it goes way back to, to goddesses. So they would combine this person of Marius who had a lot of talent, a lot of money, a lot of uh, sway in the government with this illustrious name of the Caesars, and they would combine to form kind of a a united entity to achieve both their political aims. The Caesars needed somebody with talent, somebody with money, and he needed somebody with a legitimate name that people would recognize, so they combined that way. So he actually married Caesar's Aunt Julia, who was his father's sister. Okay, so he's not a blood-related uncle. He's not uh, blood-related, no. Okay. I mean by marriage, yeah. But I mean, I think most people would call that. Yeah, that's true. Still refer to that as their uncle or aunt. But yeah, and and Marius, he would go on to become one of the greatest military leaders in Roman history. He completely reformed the Roman military army. He allowed the urban poor to serve in the military prior to that you had to be a land holding roman citizen with x amount of wealth and you had to provide your own armor and you had to provide uh, your own horse maybe or, or whatever it is you brought to war you to bring yourself and it was comprised of aristocrats and citizens alike and everybody fought in the front lines, including the politicians, which is a wild thought for today. You can imagine how wars might be different if politicians had to fight in the front lines. 
though it didn't stop the Romans from fighting. You know, they still started a lot of wars. But after you've probably heard of Hannibal, the guy who crossed the Alps, one of Rome's greatest foes. This was a, a generation or two before a lot of the Roman aristocracy and citizens all died. And so they didn't really have enough people to to have these armies anymore. And in the old days, it used to be, like I said, citizen soldiers. So they would work their farms part of the year, go on campaign for part of the year, and return and work their farms. And that was fine when they fought in Italy, when they fought other tribes and other peoples in Italy. But once they started going further and further afield, and they're fighting in Africa, and they're fighting in the Middle East, and they're fighting in Spain— it's just not possible to go back and forth and, and farm your farms during one part of the year and fight during the other. So Marius created more of a professional army. He said the state will pay for the urban poor's equipment. He will train them. He will take personal responsibility for them. And it's one of those interesting things that to me always seems like a, like a very good thing. Like you have these you know urban poor that don't have jobs, that are unemployed, that are, you know, probably causing issues in Rome, you know, via riots and giving them a chance to, to be productive. And he's giving them a chance. He's giving them a chance to, to rise in society and to make something of themselves. And it's hard to see why that would be bad. And it, it seems like the people that didn't want this at the time are, are merely, you know, being snobs. But fast forward and you'll see that since it was no longer these troops' jobs to bring their own stuff, they relied on the general. And the general to feed them, the general to clothe them, the general to give them armor, the general to keep them alive. And when they retired, they didn't have a farm to go back to. So it was the general's job to give them land. And so they became more soldiers of their individual general than soldiers of the republic. And this is what led to these kind of civil wars between Marius and Sola. Because now that it wasn't soldiers of Rome, it was soldiers of Marius, soldiers of Sola. And they loved their soldiers, and they would follow them rather than Rome because what did the government of Rome ever give these people? Nothing. So not only did the Marius uh, inscript uh, peasant soldiers, but so it also followed suit? Yeah, it's funny because I've heard that it had started to become somewhat common before Marius did it out of necessity, but he actually formalized it and made it part of the military's doctrine. And he did a lot of things with that. So he didn't know that wasn't the only change that he made. He also changed the fighting formations that they used. He had it so that they wouldn't have a baggage train. They would carry all their stuffs on their backs. So the, the troops started calling themselves Marius's mules because he didn't he didn't need horses and mules for his army. He had his soldiers who would carry everything on their backs. So he put a lot of reforms with the army, but they say that they weren't all just brand new out of nowhere. Some of them were kind of maybe done in some armies, not in others. And he you know, took the best of all the different ideas and, and made them actual part of the military doc, doctrine of the Romans versus things that were you know, maybe done, maybe not done. And yes, yeah, Sola would have followed suit as well after he passed a law that allowed him to recruit those kind of troops legally. So Marius and Sola actually started out very different because as I said, Marius was a new man, but he was very rich. But he, came, he became very rich because he made his name in the army. He was known to be a, a soldier soldier. He was extremely tough, extremely in shape. He, he fought hard with his soldiers. He, he was fearless. And so he rose via his own virtue to become this great man. Now, Sola was born a patrician. And a patrician is like the Roman aristocrat. Julius Caesar was a patrician as well. 
going back to the beginning of the Roman Republic, there were the patricians who were the aristocracy and the plebeians who were the common people. Over time, the plebeians got more power and different plebeian families that gained money would be, you know, consul, which is their version of president over and over and over again and would gain a lot of power. But this whole designation of patrician still existed. But just because you were a patrician didn't mean your money had or your family had money. And Sola was dirt poor. You know, maybe at one time they had been rich, but his father didn't really leave him with much. He grew up in a very poor sections of the city. He was friends with actors and prostitutes and comedians, which the Romans considered all to be in the same category. <laughs> they thought very little of actors. So he was really friends with the slums of society. He was hard drinking. He was he didn't have enough money to enter the Senate despite his distinguished family background. But he had some fortuitous events happen to him right around the time he was 30. His stepmother, so his father died when he was younger, but his stepmother then died and bequeathed all of her money to him. And then there was a courtesan of Rome who was obsessed with Sola. I think they had an affair going, and she loved him so much that she wrote him into her will, and then shortly later died. And well, I don't know exactly when she died, but she put him in her will, and she died. And then Sola got her money as well, so then suddenly he, he had enough wealth and qualified to go into the Senate. And he was known to be a, a very insidious character. His, people said he just had this aura of fear and, and terror that surrounded him. They said he looked like the god Apollo. He had kind of reddish gold hair. He had pale white skin. And when he became extremely angry, which he could often do out of nowhere, his face would turn blotchy purple and, and, and look, uh, people said, quite terrifying to them. So he, he got a kind of a late start in life compared to Marius, compared to m many Roman noblemen who, who's, you know, normally their fathers would have been introducing to people from the time they were young kids and putting them in good schools. And, you know, Sola had none of that. He just kind of came into this money and entered the Senate and figured, you know, let's, let's see what happens. And so there, there are rumors, right, that maybe he came into some of that money not in a scrupulous way? Yeah, yeah. It's funny. The Romans looked equally as down upon somebody that was born with a lot of money that came from their parents and, and lost it. They looked down on that kind of person just as much as they looked down on somebody that was born with nothing and suddenly came into a bunch of money. They felt that both things were immoral for some reason. And one senator even remarked to Sola one time that no person born with so little that acquired so much could have done so in a moral way. Essentially, you know, thinking that maybe he killed off some of these women that, that got, and, and ended up with all their money. You know, they don't say exactly but these rumors seem to be quite persistent about Sola, that he was a, a shady character. And yeah, people seem to think that he didn't come into his money entirely in an ethical fashion. But he did enter into the military, and he ended up serving under Marius in this war in North Africa against this King Jugurtha. And he had this, this big kind of, I don't know what you call it, a ploy. So he met somehow the cousin of King Jugurtha and the cousin wasn't too happy with the king and Sola reached out to his commanding officer Marius who was commanding the entire theater at the time and said to Marius 
And this is this is kind of before Marius is that famous. He he's getting there. He's getting to be known as a great military mind, but he's not the Marius he would later become. And he says, "Hey, this cousin of this king has agreed to set up the king so that we can kidnap him and end this war in one stroke." And so Solus, you know, volunteered for the mission. Said, "I'd like to go." And it was pretty obvious that this could be a trap for Sola, too. You know, <laughs> you're relying on this guy to betray his blood relative to you. You could just as easily decide last minute he'd rather betray you to his blood relative, who's the king, right. and, and look good, you know? So Marius said yes to this. Sola went and rode out like into the desert, I believe. I don't know if I'm remembering this exactly right. The podcast is not on Sola, so forgive me if some of the details are a little bit wrong. But they rode out to this like desert meeting place. He met with the king's cousin there and then had to wait for the king to arrive, not knowing if he was going to be turned over by this cousin or if the king was going to be turned over to him. And then eventually the cousin did decide and turned over the king to Sola and Sola spirited him away, brought him to the Roman camp and, and the Romans seized him and were able to end the war early. Marius you know, as commanding officer, as was custom in Rome, would receive all credit for this because he receives all credit or all blame regardless. You know, anybody that does things under him, it was at his orders. Therefore, he receives all the credit. But when they got back to Rome, Marius felt that Sola was bragging and, and taking all the credit for this mission, saying that he was the one that captured Jugurtha and he was the one that ended the war. And this, it kind of started some bad blood between them. And so what do you say? This this is the start of the uh, the rivalry between yeah exactly. Is, That's the uh, start of it all. Yeah, yeah. They had no issue with each other before this, as far as I know. But after this, they began to become rivals. Marius becomes consul for the first time after this war because he becomes a, a big time war hero. Consul is like the Roman equivalent of a president, except they had two of them because they never had one, they never wanted one person to have so much power. They wanted wanted them to be bounced out by a second person. So Marius becomes consul, and then around this time, a massive army of Germans and Germanic peoples comes invading down from from Germany and and and, and France and uh, sweeps down into like, the Swiss area and, and maybe northern Italy. And this is a this is I guess after Marius has left as consul and, and Rome sends up a number of armies to defeat these peoples. It's, it's not just an army of Germans. It, it's, it's their, it's men, women, and children as well. And there's three tribes. And I think there's like 350,000 of them total, which is a massive number in the ancient world. Now that's not all fighting people. That's, you know, women, children included, but they still had massive armies and the Germans really intimidated the Romans because the Romans were of short stature and the Germans were known to be huge, over six feet tall and big and muscular and strong and absolutely fierce and fought in a frenzy. And the Romans sent up multiple armies to fight these guys. But they were all commanded by these inept aristocrats that you know were too busy worrying about their own prestige and their own honor rather than defeating the enemy. So they would they would bicker with each other, they would fight, they wouldn't help each other, and so multiple Roman armies got absolutely wiped off the face of the map. Some of the worst disasters in Roman history, like 80,000 troops dead. I mean, and, and the city of Rome was terrified because now these Germans can just sweep down and sack the city of Rome. There's nothing standing between them. And I guess at this point, finally, after multiple of these defeats, they decide 
maybe we won't give the next command to a aristocrat. We'll give it to somebody that actually knows what they're doing when it comes to the military. And they elect Marius as consul again. This is pretty unusual. Typically, you'd serve as consul once in your lifetime. I think there was a rule in the books that said you could do it twice, but only like, with a 10-year gap. Marius hadn't waited 10 years, and he got elected consul again. and was given command of the armies. And I think at this point, he wouldn't even let Sola serve under him, and so tried to deny Sola any glory, <laughs> which pissed Sola off. So he, he kind of is a bit of an instigator, Marius. Yeah, in some ways. I mean, it... Like any story, you know, there's two sides. So he would say that Sola was, you know, trying to take his glory to begin with, and that he probably has no obligation to take so long campaign with him. It's it's his army, you know. Not everybody gets invited on campaign, <laughs> but he definitely didn't like Sola at that point, and Sola didn't like him. So he tried to basically sideline Sola in his career. And Marius takes his troops up, and and he's elected consul again and again, six times in total. This is unheard of in Roman history. It, it's a special thing to be elected consul twice. He, he's elected consul six times, not all in a row. So he's the first time in a gap and then maybe four or five times in a row after that, but a total of six times at this point. And he kind of trails these Germans and he wants his troops to become familiar with the Germans. So he puts his camp right next to the Germans and he wants his troops to look at them so that they become accustomed to them and they're not so afraid of them. And his troops begin to complain at one point that they have no water and that they're thirsty. And Marius points to a river over by the Germans and he says, you want water? Take it from the enemy. And so he, he forced his troops to go fight for their water and fight the Germans. And they actually end up chasing the Germans off. And eventually he's doing all these things that build their confidence and make them think that they can win again because they're really down and out after all those losses. Eventually, through some brilliant military victories, he absolutely destroys at least one of the tribes, or maybe two of them. And then the third tribe comes to him, and you know, because they're all they're all wandering. Some of them wander down into Spain, and then they come back up to northern Italy, or they, they wander through France because there was that kind of a trend at the time that people would pick up and, and burn all their homes for some reason and go travel in mass to a new area that thought could be better for their people. And so they were all looking for a new home, but you know they're happy to raid along the way, and they're, they were very warlike people. And so this, this new tribe comes, and they demand to speak with, I guess, the other tribes. They demand to know where they are, and they meet with Marius. And Marius says something along the lines, and I'm probably getting this ex- not exactly correct, but he says to them, oh, and they demand land of Marius too. They want the Romans to give them land. And Marius says, your friends are around here, and don't worry, you'll have the same land I gave to them. Meaning that he had killed all these other tribes and, and put them all on the ground, and saying that the land that you'll get is, is a grave just like them. I probably butchered that one. It's not exactly right, but Marius is basically kind of the ultimate tough guy and was not afraid of these guys. And eventually he defeats all these tribes, and he comes back to Rome, conquering hero. They name him as the third founder of Rome. Yeah, there's a second founder outside of Romulus, but we won't go into him. They call him the third founder, and he's a huge celebrity. And he becomes like a larger-than-life force in Rome. Any questions on that, Brennan? Yeah, I guess I was wondering uh, before when you said that the, these tribes wandered down into the peninsula, how much intention did they have of even attacking Rome or, uh, or how much awareness did they have that, that Rome existed? I, I guess they knew that it existed, but 
did they really have any sense of were they purely wandering or did they have some intent showing down to the peninsula they were wandering but they they certainly liked to raid and, and sack villages and, and cities when they found them and the romans they were all obsessed with kind of controlling everything and they felt that these wandering peoples couldn't possibly be good and they're just going to cause instability in the region and so they wanted to put a stop to it and the romans also had this deep-seated i mean deep-seated psychological fear of the northern barbarians and it goes back to when the republic was early on some gauls came down from the north Actually, the story really goes that, and, and the Gauls were from like modern-day France, but they were also considered by the Romans to be barbarians from the north. I guess some Sicilian king had hired them for some kind of mercenary army, and on their way back from that war, back up to modern-day France, they see Rome sitting there. And they're like, oh, why don't we sack this village? Or the, I mean, not village, but this city. And so they go and they fight the Roman army, and the Roman army becomes terrorized by how aggressive and out of control these Gauls are. And the Roman army takes off in flight and gets it put to flight. And the Gauls come up to the city and, and the, ga- the Romans left in such a panic. The, the gate is still open. It's this bizarre scene. So they walk right into the city and they're thinking that this could be some kind of trap. They're very nervous. And, and the king of the Gauls tells them not to go to you know, wander too much. And eventually they end up in the maybe richer area of the city and the older, like elder statesmen of Rome had refused to leave their homes and they had sat, they had put on all their regalia of office, you know, their special togas and special rings and everything that made them look like Roman senators. And they sat, they sat in their homes like statues upon their special consular chairs. And they just sat there like sat, and, and the Gauls started opening these, these mansions and going into these these big Roman homes, and they would see these guys sitting there, and they were very confused by it. They didn't know, like, why were these guys just sitting there? They weren't responding. They weren't fighting. And they were just sitting there looking like regal statues. And so one of the Gauls comes up and, and pokes one of these elder statesmen, and the guy takes, I guess, a rod he had in his hand and smacks the Gaul. And the Gauls just lose their mind and start butchering the guy, and they start butchering all of these elder statesmen. It, it, it's just a v- bizarre story. And eventually the Romans sue for peace and, and offer them a bunch of gold and say, hey, you know, if, you, if we give you this gold, will you leave us alone? The Gauls, who aren't interested in taking their territory, they just want money, said, yeah, sure, why not? And they're weighing out the scales, and they're saying, hey, you need to give us X amount of gold. And the Romans begin to complain that the scales are weighted in the Gauls' favor. It's not a fair scare, scale. It's a, it's a cheater scale. And so the, the Gallic king walks up to the scale, looks at the Romans, tosses his sword on his side of the scale, too, to add to the unfairness, and says, woe to the vanquished. Woe to the vanquished, meaning the vanquished have no rights. You have lost, you have no rights, therefore we can do what we want to you. You know, there is no such thing as fairness for you. And the Romans never forgot this lesson. This would drive them for the rest of the, I don't know, 800,000. It all depends on how, where you cut, cut off. But the rest of their existence, they would be driven by this psychological lesson they received when they were kind of in their child status of, of, of being a, a city-state. 
and they would never forget that. So they had this this deep-seated fear of barbarian invasions from the north that could sweep down and just sack their city. And they never wanted to, to go through that kind of pain and embarrassment again. So when they saw these big Germanic tribes wandering up north, they're like, we got to put an end to this. And, and they felt that nobody should wander without their permission, and that sooner or later, if they weren't asking for Roman land now, they would be later, you know? Right. Yeah, yeah. So I never knew that it started off with the, the Gauls just walking into Rome like that. I kind of assumed that the first time that they had actually entered Rome was uh, later on in the in the Empire. But yeah, it's interesting that that's the background to their their hate for the Gauls. Yeah, yeah, it is interesting because they were sacked early on in that instance in their history, and they wouldn't be sacked again for some 800-some years till it was a Gothic king, Alaric, sacked the city 800 years later. Now, when was this initial uh, sacking in relation to Marius and Sola their time? That's a good question. I don't know the exact year. I know it was hundreds of years before their time, though. Um, okay. Or at least 150, 200 years, maybe more. Probably more. And But the Romans, it affected them to the point where they, they always kept an emergency fund of gold called like the, I don't know, like the Gallic Fund or something like that. I don't know, maybe that's not the exact name, but that's what it would be used for. It was a fund of a stash of money that in case Gauls ever invaded again, barbarians from the north, they would have this, this fund to pay for weapons and to fight a war against them. It was an emergency fund, just like today we keep emergency funds for natural disasters. They had one for Gauls that they kept at all times. It was supposed to be untouchable and nobody would use it because it was reserved in case this ever happened again. But Marius comes back. He, he was very good militarily, but he seems to have been kind of, I don't know, shifty pol- politically. And he would ally himself with a lot of seedy characters and would like encourage maybe... I've heard he encouraged like assassinations of different people. <laughs> this is not the way Rome did things. They were very much like a republic or democracy by today's standards. I mean, eh, probably m- much more violent than today's standards, but violence was not supposed to be the way that political disputes were settled in Rome. And so Marius soon kind of gets sidelined and loses favor. So he served his six consulships, and he kind of just goes away for a while. And there's some people say that he had health problems, during that time, but the Romans were funny in that they would make fun of you if you got soft later in life as a public figure, you'd be an object of ridicule, but if you held on to the reins too long, they'd make fun of you and say you're trying to hold on too long. So there was, it was a lose-lose situation. So Marius, they started joking that he was fat, that he was overweight, that he was a, a nobody now. This guy that had done so much to save the city, you, you can imagine how that felt to him. But new generation comes on the scene. Sola begins to rise up the ranks. Sola becomes consul. Again, that's the Roman version of president. And at the same time, this king in the east from a, a, a kingdom called Pontus, which is like northern Turkey. In, his name is Mithridates. And he invades the eastern Roman Empire. So he invades Greece. He invades some of the areas of Turkey that Greece rules. And he just slaughters every single Roman citizen he can find in all these provinces. And he tells all the, all the people who are ruled by the Romans and the Greeks to rise up and kill the Roman citizens too. And they do. And they, they butcher thousands, I mean maybe hundreds of thousands. I don't know how many exactly. So now Rome says we can't stand for this. 
and they will need to create an, a commission to the east, like an eastern command, a commander to take an army out to the east to fight Mithridates and, and put him back in his place and restore order to the eastern part of the Roman Empire. Sola is the man they select. He's known to be a brave leader who, who fights with his troops. In the meantime, I guess going back a little bit, because Sola did, one of the ways he began to gain this reputation outside of what he did in Africa was there was a thing called the Social War in between the Germans and, and this Eastern War where the Italians rose up and, and rebelled against the Romans. And some Roman, some Italians were on the Roman side, some weren't, but it was basically a civil war within Italy. And Sola received... Um, I just a quick question. So yeah. when you say Italian, are we talking about tribes here? Are these civilized people or... How do they compare to the Romans and the Gauls? No, that's a great question. So early on in, in the Roman city-state life, they had mostly fought against these rival Italian tribes or city-states, the Sabines, the Marci, is some of the names of these people are called. And Rome had defeated them one by one and kind of brought them into the fold. And they didn't have the same rights as Romans did, but they had much more rights than the rest of the empire did. They'd be given an Italian status, or uh, some of the tribes real close to Rome would be given uh, Latin rights, which was pretty close to having Roman citizenship. And the whole war was fought over the fact that these Italian communities, who provided the bulk of the Roman armies nowadays, didn't have citizenship and didn't get to vote on who was consul and didn't get to vote on any of this stuff. And what's ironic is, even when they rose up against Rome, they didn't want to destroy Rome, they wanted to be Rome. So they created uh, like a, a government that was exactly like Rome's of their own. They created coins that were very similar to Roman coins. They had legions that fought like Roman legions. So it was a war of, of Rome against her own Italian allies. And does that answer the question? I mean, they were yeah, definitely yeah, they were definitely. civilized. Maybe they weren't quite as advanced as the Romans or. Even maybe the Romans were were the same level of advancement, but the Romans were just known to be almost like pig-headedly stubborn when it came to war. They would rather be wiped off the face of the map than surrender. And most city-states and tribes did not operate this way in ancient times. And most people don't operate that way nowadays. But the Romans would really rather be wiped off the face of the earth than ever surrender. So they were a very tough foe to beat because they would they would never stop. And uh, they might lose again and again and again like they did against the Germans, but they would just keep on raising new armies, and w- it was just unthinkable for them to surrender. So the Romans end up winning this, this social war, and then they go ahead and, and grant a lot of these Italian allies citizenship anyway because they realize that this had to happen. <laughs> and But in that war, Sola won what's called uh, the Grass Crown, it's uh, kind of like a, like a Medal of Honor today. The Romans had a bunch of different honors you could win. One of the cooler ones, I don't even know what it's called, but it's it's an award that you would get if you killed a barbarian king in single combat. <laughs> and I think only a few soldiers won it in, in all the Roman history, but it's a pretty badass honor to win a, an award for killing a barbarian king in single, single combat. But anyway, Solo wins what's called the grass crown which is one of the rarest distinctions given to any soldier it's when one individual saves an entire legion 
And a legion is kind of the, the Roman unit the, the armies are divided up, up into. So it would be like the 1st Legion, 2nd Legion, 3rd Legion, and each legion was maybe like 3,500 men or so, depending on if they were at full strength. And so he saves an entire legion during this social war and wins the grass crown, becomes a military hero. Hardly anyone gets this kind of award because it's just, I mean, how many people find themselves in the opportunity to save a legion, never mind actually do it. And he becomes consul based on this new fame that he's got, and he wins this command against Mithridates in the east. And at this point, he's still as consul commanding armies in the south of Italy or you know further south than Rome, destroying the last of the holdouts of these Italian uh, rebels. And Marius decides that he had always wanted a, uh, an eastern command himself. And how dare Sola take it for himself? And at this point, Marius is old. He's not young. He's got to be in his late 60s maybe, which in ancient Rome, I mean, that's very old. You know, people usually don't even live that long. Why is it? Why is the uh, Eastern Command so important? Why? Why is that more valued by Marius than any other command? That's a that's a great point. I, I should have mentioned that in in Rome, Eastern commands were known to be extremely rich, and extremely, or held held the opportunity for a lot of glory. So the the Eastern half of the empire, throughout the entire empire, was always the richer half. It was much more developed, a lot more people, a lot more gold. So a lot more chances for riches for the general and a lot more chances for glory. And the Romans all had this kind of obsession with Alexander the Great, too. And, and going and taking your armies east always felt like they were playing at being Alexander, you know, conquering the same areas that he conquered, fighting the same kind of enemies that he fought. And it was just paid attention by the Roman people much more, since I guess a, a lot of that area was civilized. They would write, it, you weren't fighting barbarians, you were fighting civilized people. At the same time, in kind of contradictory, the Romans saw Eastern peoples as being weak and effeminate. So it was felt that they were easier to beat, too. So it doesn't really make sense. There's a big contradiction there. You would win more glory, but they were easier to beat, and they had more money. But I don't know. That's just the way it was. So everybody wanted an Eastern command, and Marius had won one his entire life and had just never had the opportunity. And now this guy, Mithridates, comes in and I mean, he really like rocked Rome right in the nose by killing all those civilians. So this is not like your ordinary Eastern command. This is a this is going to be a massive battle. And so when we say East, what area do we mean in modern day uh, in terms of modern day countries? Is this like Greece or this further east, uh, Turkey or the Middle East? Yeah. So he was uh, Pontus, which was where Mithridates was from, was northern Turkey. He conquered much of Turkey, going west from there towards the mediterranean he conquered through where say istanbul is now into greece a lot of the islands like say crete in that kind of area it's really greece and turkey and some of the areas in between and that's it's it's funny the romans would call that asia the middle east to them was asia but marius anyway he decides that he wants his command for himself He's still glory hungry, even though he's this old. And actually, let me just go back a little bit. I had said that he was out from public life and nobody had seen him in a while. And they were joking that he was fat and out of shape and this and that. Well, he had decided that he was going to get started a very, what they call it, like a public workout, almost like a Rocky montage. So he, he just started showing up in the public workout forums that the Romans had, and he starts swimming, and, and he's exercising, and he's running, and, he, and he's fighting with weapons, 
And this is all as an old man. And he's getting in shape, and the people are loving it, and they're cheering him on. And it becomes like it becomes kind of a sensation again, and, and puts his name back on the map. And and he's not out of shape. He's not out of politics. He's back in things. He, he and he wants. He's ambitious again. And so then he decides that he wants this Eastern Command. So while Sola's fighting the last of these rebels, he holds a meeting of the Senate, Marius, and he got he gets some bully boys with him. You know, some some thugs. And they just start throwing Roman senators out of the Senate meeting, I believe, till they get the vote right to strip Sola of his command and give it to Marius. So now this, this sounds it sounds very uncivilized and like uh, <laughs> a very non-traditional way to do things. Is this typical for Rome, or how, how does this as a republic is this in in what position does uh, Marius even hold at this point to uh, to carry these these things out? He doesn't hold any really. He he's maybe he might call him the first man in Rome. Everybody in Rome was always trying to become the first man in Rome, which meant you were kind of like the preeminent citizen. But you didn't. It wasn't an official position, and not even not every generation even had a first man in Rome. You had to be above and beyond your peers, which also meant that everybody hated you as soon as you became the first man in Rome, because they all resented anybody being above them. You know, they're all about everybody should be equal, and so they try and tear down anybody who got above them. But this kind of physical, aggressive bullying tactics wasn't unheard of in Rome. It had happened. It was happening more recently in recent generations. But it was still unusual and still appalling to many of the citizens that he had done this. But again, it wasn't like things like this hadn't been done before. But what happened next had never been done before. Sola's reaction was beyond the pale. If what Marius did was a strong area of gray that might border on wrong, what Sola did was, without a doubt, no Roman could condone what he did. And that is the end of part one of episode one. To find out what Sola does that the ancient Romans find to be so appalling and such terrible behavior, keep on listening to part two of episode one, We look forward to having you there, and we will see you next time on the March of History.